Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. rewind your mind, <laughs> ready for the next talk, um, which is about free will, and you could make that into an argument about computers too, I mean, if you think um, computers have free will, you know, perhaps reflecting on themselves and choosing a different course of action, you know, that would be, um, if that's not possible to computers, then there might be another difference. But it's not sort of the way in which I want to approach this topic. Um, there are, of course, all sorts of uh, arguments about free will, and you know, analytical philosophers have made all sorts of labels, and you know, they belong in this box and that box, you're compatibilist or not, and all these kind of things. That's not what I want to look at. Um, I just want to zoom out a little bit and look at bigger and also cultural um, kind of context. Um, this, uh, the contemporary culture certainly puts a whole lot of value on choice. Everything must be my choice. That's a very important thing, and woe over you if you interfere with it. You know? So autonomy you know, is very important. And, uh, and indeed, there are all sorts of unprecedented options that we have, partly because of technology you know, and computers and so forth. Um, and yet, I sometimes also think people also feel a lot of pressure and less free than ever. <laughs> Maybe career pressures and so forth. But I do think the pressure underlying all of that is still somewhat different. Let's assume you make it. You, know, you have made your career, you have all the money in the world, you have a nice car and a villa somewhere and so forth. Right? All the options are open for you, perfect freedom all the choices you want, nobody's interfering with you, then what? Then what do you do? Right? Uh, you have the choice, but what do you choose? And why? Is there a f uh, an answer to that question? Or why is that even a question? Um, if choice and autonomy are an end in themselves, then there shouldn't be any further question. If that's the ultimate goal, to have choices, then there wouldn't be a further question. But I think what one can see there is, um, well, again, there is a further question, and there is a kind of a vacuum that opens up at that point. All the choices are there, which do I choose? It doesn't matter, it, or does it? 
So there is a kind of an empty space that you wonder what is going uh, to move into that. And certainly there are all these consumer options immediately moving into that and dazzling your mind so that you don't even have to ask that question anymore. You know? and distract yourself perhaps from the void that you're experiencing in the middle of it. Perhaps, you know, among all these options and objects out there, there's nothing that um, seems to be particularly appealing to you or they're all indifferent. Maybe it's just about you, as long as it is my choice, right? And the most important thing is to be myself. I just got to be me in my life choices. I have to be authentically myself. But then the same question arises yet again. Who are you? You, know, you want to say, I need to be me, but who am I? And how do we find out about that? Just by introspection, navel gazing or something? Do I know who I am there? Um, I don't think so. What we find in ourselves is usually the result already of our interacting with the rest of reality. So on both the object and the subject side, if you want, there doesn't seem to be a point of orientation. It's sort of this void on both sides, really. So, but it's important for us perhaps once in a while to experience that void because it will help us to understand that freedom of choice is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. Right? Why would we even want to have these choices? Because we want to be able to pursue something further, a further end. And how do we call that end? It's a traditional name for it. It's called happiness. Yeah. Everything we choose, we choose for the sake of something good. We never choose bad as such. You know? um, the sum total of that you might call happiness. Do you ever pursue unhappiness? You know, or why would you do that? I know that seem to be people who enjoy ill health or something like that, as they say. <laughs> but it's not really about enjoying the unhappiness, though. There are other further kind of things that seem maybe rewarding about very strange states of mind sometimes. You can say, well, I have free will, you know, and I'm going to show you I can choose unhappiness. There I go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then why do you do that, right? I mean, you want to show me something. Right? That's the good you're pursuing in that. There is a kind of happiness you find in that. There's always, we always choose for the sake something, of something good and ultimately for what we call happiness. And that's the end. Freedom of choice is just to enable us to do that. You know, if you are constrained in any way to pursue your happiness, uh, that's not a good thing. And so you want indeed to have free choice, but it's a means to an end and not the end in itself. Um, now, if you take that sort of in the political realm, um, that also is the consequence that sometimes people are even willing to forgo their freedom if their happiness seems to be guaranteed in other ways. Uh, I find it somewhat disconcerting. I saw polls that, for example, younger generation doesn't seem to care much about democracy anymore or the kind of liberties and freedoms that go with that sort of contradictory to what I said earlier. Um, maybe, you know, sometimes we lose the sense of the freedom that our ancestors fought for, you know, and are willing to surrender that. If 
you know, on the other hand, somebody promises us to have a certain kind of happiness. Let's say these uh, artificial intelligence theories prevail, you know, and we have this, we are all plugged into the internet, you know, by direct brain implant, and uh, the ones who run the internet guarantee us perfect happiness. We just have to surrender our choices and forever enter into this machine in which there is no real choice anymore, you know, like the matrix perhaps, I don't know if that's the same. But, um, so people might be willing to surrender that, and that can be to a certain extent intelligible because, again, free choice is a means to an end, not the end in itself. And if we can get the end in other ways, maybe we can let go of the means. That might be the element of truth, and it's still not good, I think. But So if, on the other hand, we think that there is importance to freedom, and we take that, first of all, in the political sense, there are still different ways of looking at that. What I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to go from the big picture and then zero in, if you want. So there's the widest and most generally human sense of freedom that we have and its importance, and there's a political sense. And so there's like concentric circles, and you're coming closer. Uh, political uh, circumstances and other external circumstances can limit your range of action. There's a freedom of action that is uh, seems to be important, uh, but we'll see that's different from freedom of will. That's yet another question. But so, I mean, I'm right now on that circle, if you want. So in politics, um, political freedom can be seen as the freedom from the interference of the state in our private lives. And depending on the state we live in, that's probably maybe sometimes what we want. But to say that also implies something. It implies that, we, that our happiness is not to be found in our relationship to the state, but precisely in our private lives. So you see again how freedom and happiness are correlated. You know, we feel free if we can pursue a happiness. In a political sense, if you say we have to be free from the state, then we say our happiness has nothing to do with the state. It is in our private lives. Um, <clears throat> on the contrary, if we are communal or political animals, of course we have reason and speech, and we can coordinate, communicate, and cooperate with each other and build a higher kind of good, a common good, then we will also seek our happiness there. And immediately our sense of what freedom is will change. Our freedom then is not freedom to exclude the state from our private lives. It's a freedom to participate in the life of the state. And there are political uh, theories of democracy and so forth that appeal to that sense rather. The ancient Athenian democracy was based on that. It's a freedom of participation rather than freedom from the state. Now you can take it in a wider scope. Maybe there is a scope of happiness even beyond the common good of the state and the community. Maybe even beyond this world. For example, in our relationship with God, which theologically speaking would say is the ultimate and highest good. And compared to that, even our relationship to the state is relative. The state can never assume to give us the whole of the meaning of our life. You know? And that's why also there are certain things like human rights. Because 
our happiness has to do primarily then with our relationship with God. That's how Aquinas would see that. And that is then not only what defines our sense of freedom in a political sense, but even the very freedom of our will. So we're getting a little closer here. It's interesting we're getting wider out, but also closer <laughs> to who we are. Um, so Aquinas would say we have free choice, freedom of the will, not just freedom of action, but freedom of our choices, um, because we are made for God. And everything we encounter in this life is not God. We are made for an infinite and ultimate good, and all the goods we encounter in this life are finite and limited goods. They are penultimate. And therefore, knowing that this doesn't fill out our true sense of happiness, we are free to choose them or let them be. In some way, they can leave us cold, you know, because only God can set us on fire if you want. You know? um, or, as St. Augustine famously says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. All the different finite goods out there leave us restless, and that means they also leave us free. They don't fill out our heart and our ultimate desires. The interesting point about that is that we are free with regard to all of these things depends on something that's not our choice. Namely, that we are made for God. Because with regard to God, we don't have that choice anymore. So theologically speaking, Aquinas would say, if we are face to face with God, if we are seeing the one for whom we are made, there is no intrinsic reason for us anymore to turn away from that. We wouldn't want that. You know? and, um, and that is part of our happiness to know that we will never turn away from it again. Aquinas actually argues against Origen here, who says, well, it's all cycles. You know? So we are up there for a while, and then we drop back into matter, and, or whatever that might be, and, um, and it's going all in cycles. Aquinas says, that's not happiness. You know, how could you be happy, even if you're with God, knowing that that will end? You know? Part of our happiness is to know that it never ends. But the reason why it doesn't end is because it is our ultimate end. It is, uh, there's nothing else we should want or there's no further reason that could be given for why we should turn away from it. So that's where free choice ends, but that's precisely where our happiness begins. That's where the means can fall by the wayside because we have achieved the end. And that's part of who we are. It's part of our nature. That's not a matter of our choice anymore, but that enables all the other choices. And in that, we are actually not so unlike other things. You know, you take this chalk, never let it go. What do we call that? Gravity or free fall. <laughs> In which sense is that fall free? Chalk is going where it ought to be. Where it ought to be, where it wants to be, where it is inclined to go. You know? where it goes on its own terms, by its very nature. You know? uh, 
Aristotle would even say if we do something else with a chalk, like throwing it up, that's a form of violent motion because it's against its nature. By its very nature, just left to its own, it would fall down. Right? And that's very interesting. The, uh, the opposite of um, natural is violent. But violent is also the opposite of free. So, um, well, I'll just leave that there for a moment. But it's first of all interesting to notice we talk about freedom even with regard to immaterial things. And in a way, that's not so different for us. It is just that our center of gravity, so the heavy objects tend to the center of gravity, that's the place where they're naturally inclined to go. Our center of gravity is something else, it's God. By our nature, we gravitate towards God, and if we are moving towards God, that's when we will feel free. That's what we do spontaneously. And that's what we continue to do even in heaven. That's part of our happiness. So St. Augustine says, Amor meus pondus meus. My love is my weight. My gravity, right? I'm gravitating towards God by my very nature. And that's the root of my freedom and its fulfillment is our happiness. So there you have a big picture. Um, coming back for a moment to our contemporary culture, I think there is something I want to point out that is sort of a blind spot. Um, so one, as I said, is we want to be free. We want our choices to be respected and so forth. And the apex, philosophically speaking, or the incarnation of that might be Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, He's a bit of an older uh, semester already. You know, you think it's a bit outdated, but in fact, if you look at it, he really articulates what still is very much prevalent in the culture. Everything must be my choice, including, I, I mean, it's almost like I have to create myself. And God is actually an obstacle to that. I mean, we have to be free even with regard to God. You know, that's contrary to what I just said in Aquinas. That is, if God exists, he is giving me my nature. And that limits me, right? So Sartre thinks I even have to create my very own nature. And everything is my choice. And I will give Sartre that he is at least someone who does defend free will, unlike other people. And there's some good points that he makes, and they have to do you know, in some way with the kind of reflexivity I talked about earlier you can reflect on where you are, the state of your life, where you find yourself, and you can re-envision that in a way. You can make then, uh, taking this reflective step back from it, you can uh, look at your choices, you can actually restructure your life or redirect your life. You know? Sartre takes it to the point that you can even say, well, none of that makes sense, I'm out of here. You know? I deny everything. Right? I negate everything, and then what do I do? I commit suicide. That's, of course, where it gets weird. You know? um, so for Sartre, freedom is negation. You negate all that is. Because the name of his book is Being and Nothingness. So there's how things are, but your freedom consists in the nothingness, and the negating of that. And if you are 
fed up with the whole thing or deny the whole thing, then you commit suicide. That's sort of the ultimate escape, but that's the ultimate act of freedom for Sartre too. So that also tells you um, that's where it gets weird if you absolutize freedom. You know, that's probably where you are left at the end. You know. um, so, but I do think there is some of that uh, in our culture, in the, our very bones sometimes. But uh, I want to point out that's only one side of things. The other side might be found in, well, sort of your typical issue of Time magazine, whether I found the latest thing in your brain, you know, and uh, or the, your genetics that explains to you why you do certain things, and how all that you, the choices that you make are just sort of confabulations after the fact. You know, it's in fact your brain has already made the decisions for you, uh, and you just think you have made the decision. And then people are all hooray, you know, we have debunked another kind of myth that covered from some religion, and um, so there is no free will after all, and science tells us we should get rid of religion, you know. That's another kind of narrative that we have. But notice, it is the polar opposite of uh, that claim that our choices must matter and are the most important thing in our life. If that is true, we don't have choices, right? And most of us believe both things at different times in our life, you know, at different times of the day, perhaps. You know. And we don't see that this is a, a flat contradiction. You know. And I, I do think that's uh, something one needs to point out. Um, and uh, that can be illustrated in so many ways. I'll just give you um, one. And that is these famous experiments by Benjamin Libet. some successor uh, experiments that modify some of the scenario, but uh, I think they all have the same flaws. So that's often quoted as evidence, I mean, so it's a brain study, um, I'll explain that in a moment, uh, as saying that we are not free. You know, it's our brain making these choices even before we are aware of it. So in 18, 1985, um, they put people into this uh, laboratory and asked them to wiggle a finger at any time within 30 seconds without planning ahead. Just note, you know, the time on a particular kind of dial. Um, and uh, when they were first aware, as it says, when they were first aware of having the wish or urge to act, and then they're supposed to press that button. And at the same time, their brain activity was monitored. And it turns out that there was brain activity preceding that felt urge to act. And that brain activity was, um, is called the readiness potential. This is actually coming from some German uh, scientist, Bereitschaftspotential. Um, and, um, but what people take that to mean is the brain already has had all of its processes once before you become aware of it and conscious of it. So forget about you know, consciousness here that might, that might exist, but it's just an after effect of physical causalities. Now, is that a good experiment? I want to suggest, nope, it's not. Um, even if you add in, I mean, Benjamin Libet said later that, or maybe at least we can later veto that you know, readiness potential in our brain, maybe that's the only freedom that we have. I don't think that changes much about that. Um, 
that would uh, yeah, I'll just leave that there. Um, so, but what are the problems with the principal setup of that? Um, the first problem with that is that the very act of claiming to have proved something is a claim to free will. So if the scientists claim they have just proved we don't have free will, for that very act, they must claim the freedom to state that. That cannot be itself another expression of a readiness potential. Why is that? Well, for the reason I explained earlier here with the prescriptive and descriptive laws. If, um, so one scientist says, nope, there is that readiness potential, there is no free will. In comes John Paul Sartre and says, well, there is free will and I can prove it to you for X, Y, or Z reasons. The one who believes in determination by the brain would have to acknowledge that what Sartre just said is also the result of a readiness potential. Both are the result of a readiness potential, but neither of that will allow you to say which one is true. The causes that are operative in your brain don't uh, explain to you which result is the correct one. You know, that would have to say, well, maybe one brain is wired a different way, but what's or the, uh, the wrong way? What, what does wrong mean here? For that, you have to have the freedom to step away from these causalities and evaluate it. That is itself an act of freedom. If you don't claim that freedom, you cannot claim anything, let alone a scientific theory. So a neurophysiologist who claims to have proved that we don't have free will contradicts himself in the very act of claiming that. <coughs> hope that makes some sense. Uh, I think that's an important reflection just generally to keep in mind. There are many arguments that work in that way. Um, so we must have, even to have a scientific dialogue or disagreement, we must have the freedom to argue, which we don't have if they are right. Um, we also, I mean, Leavitt must have assumed that the people who are in that machine must have had the freedom to choose not to lie to him. Right? So you rely basically on their responsibility in so many ways. If they're not free, that might be yet another outcome from random kind of processes. That's a minor kind of argument to make. Some people have said so. Um, now, but perhaps more importantly, what this experiment misses is the very nature of what it means to have free will. Just look at the setup of the experiment. They were asked to press a button when they experienced the urge to act. What's that? The experience of an urge to act. Is that the same as having a, a case of a free choice or decision? No, it's not. You know, it's basically, uh, notice it's a passive formulation. Something happens to you. Suddenly you experience an urge. Well, why would you expect that to be anything else but this readiness potential? Of course something happens in your brain and suddenly comes to your awareness there. It's not something you choose, it's exactly something you wait for. But you don't typically wait for your choices, you make them, right? Making choices is an active kind of thing to do. And so the very, 
setup of the experiment is actually looking for something totally different. You know, and something you shouldn't even need to make the experiment. That's you should expect that. You know, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, basically, you are asking the persons in the machine to let their choices be determined by something else than their choice, you know, namely by their brain physiology, because that's when this urge suddenly arises from unconscious brain things. Um, or, you know, as Edward Faser says, the feeling of an urge to sneeze does not make a sneeze voluntary. <laughs> you know? It's like that, you know, like the urge to sneeze, but that's not an act of free will. Is it a feeling at all? You know, looking for an experience or a feeling. Well, uh, for one, I would say any feeling would have to do with material brain states indeed. Uh, free choice is actually not, it doesn't have a physical organ, not the brain either. That's a whole other question. But um, a feeling also, again, is something passive. It happens to us. Feelings are precisely what we do not choose. I cannot choose to be in pain, right? That happens to me, right? So how can then free will be something like a feeling? We shouldn't be looking for that and poking around, do I feel some free will in me or something like that? I think that's the wrong place to look in the first place. Um, let me see. If... So <clears throat> in fact, you know, if there is a choice in this experiment, it has happened much earlier. It was the choice to freely enter into the experiment, right? And to agree to the terms of the experiment. So it was explained to you, and there were reasons why you would choose to do that. And these choices were setting the stage for whatever else happened then. That happened within that choice. You choose to let things passively arise in you, which is not an act of free will, but that was a choice you made earlier. And that's actually an important thing to consider because many, much of our life is of that sort. Just think of how you got out of bed this morning. Maybe your alarm clock rang. <laughs> and uh, so that woke you up, but then you have still to make the choice to put your legs out of the bed. You know? And so it's, okay, I'm choosing now to get up. And you just stay in bed. Right? <laughs> but at some point you suddenly find, oh, I've just gotten up, I'm standing here, right? You don't quite know how that happened, right? Uh, does that mean it wasn't a choice? No, I mean, that, certainly, I mean, there's all this kind of physiology happening and um, that, uh, you know, suddenly overtakes you and you find yourself having gotten up. But that is embedded in the prior choice, the conscious choice to get up. So you, you do something like something to this experiment you choose to get up, but let further circumstances determine the moment when that happens. Of course, I mean, you can with brute force force you to get up. That's possible too, you know, but typically this is a typical scenario of what we do all sorts of, with all sorts of things in life, all the routines we develop in life. Or if you play tennis, right? So you choose to play tennis. That's a choice. But then your immediate reactions in the game, you allow what you have habituated, you know, physically uh, to take over, and that works much better. So having free will doesn't mean that every individual act in our life is freely chosen. 
many of these things precede or um, happen um, within a larger realm of choices. I'll come back to that if we have time. But, <clears throat> so first of all, that notice to enter that experiment, there's a preceding choice and that has to do with reasons that you have. Oh, I appreciate science and I think science should make progress and I want to figure out the reasons for why we uh, think certain things and so forth and so on. Freedom cannot be had without knowledge. There's reason and insight involved in that. Freedom is precisely not just simply an urge overtaking you. Reason, excuse me, um, freedom follows from reasons, not from causes. That's again where that distinction is important. Reasons also tell you what you ought to do. They're prescriptive. They're not just uh, simply describing how things happen. So if you deliberate about what you ought to do, you are entertaining reasons, and they're different from causes. Because otherwise there's no reason to entertain reasons because you don't have choices anymore. <clears throat> so reason is important, and I think we intuitively know that. So something like this, let's say somebody gives you two closed envelopes, right? And tells you one envelope are one million dollar, other envelope is your death sentence. Now choose. Okay, you choose one envelope, and lo and behold, it turns out to be your death sentence. What will you say? I didn't want that, right? And you say, well, you just chose it. You, you could have chosen the other one. It was your free choice, right? No, but I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing, right? So. We don't feel free if we don't know what we are doing. Knowledge is very important for uh, our sense of freedom. And I think if we, want, if we want to look for evidence for free will, we shouldn't look for any feelings or urges or other kind of things in our life. We should look at the reasons that we have for our actions and how we deliberate about them. Um, these are not things we feel. Reasons are not something we feel, except perhaps accidentally. You know? But reasons are spiritual things. You know? they, are, um, they don't even have a physical organ. But they're rational, and they have a certain kind of structure, and they're of the prescriptive kind. And that itself, I think, is evidence for free will. The very fact that we evaluate how things go are an entertainment of reasons, of moral reasons. Reason also allows us to compare our choices, such as you know, the death sentence and the one million dollar. If we just have images you know, or sensations, they would tend to be atomic. They're one at a time. They're particular. Right? I have one image at a time. Even if you begin to compare two images in your mind, that's not another act of the imagination. That's an act of reasoning. The kind of comparing and relating that we do, that's something Aquinas would say uh, we do by reason. That's a rational kind of procedure. And so if we deliberate, we compare our choices. And um, <clears throat> now if we... Um, 
if we compare our choices, they can be compared to the ultimate end that we talked about earlier. So all these finite choices that we have are not the ultimate good that we pursue as the end. So Aquinas says what we deliberate about are the means to that end. That's what he calls liberum arbitrium, free choice. Uh, we deliberate about the means to the end, but not the end itself. The end itself is given by our very nature. That's what we freely fall towards, if you want. You know? But in this life, there are very various paths that we can choose, some better than others, but in any case, we deliberate about them. And that is uh, the activity of making free choices. But they always involve reasons, because reasons are that which allows us to compare these choices among each other and order all of these choices to the ultimate end. All of which then also again means that um, we cannot really choose what we don't know. So knowledge again is important. And um, uh, one uh, result of that is Aquinas says you cannot will the impossible. So if you know something to be impossible, that's not a possible object of your choice. You cannot choose things you know to be impossible. You might wish them, you know, but you cannot will them, Aquinas says. Um, even God cannot eat Chicago, somebody has said. You know? There's not a rational option for God. You know? um, or I cannot decide to jump over a skyscraper. I might try, but even that is not quite intelligible. What does it mean to try to jump over a skyscraper? That, that action is not, it's hard to describe, you know? So, but it is, uh, generally speaking, we cannot decide to do something we know to be impossible. Because will, the will presupposes the intellect, the two spiritual faculties of the soul, Aquinas says, um, uh, do have to cooperate here. We choose among the means, and they are presented to us by reason. And so we need these kind of informed choices. Now, let's say uh, reason indeed has presented you with all of these choices. There's still a further question. Moving in further and further here, right? So we are right now in the internal operations of our mind and the choices we make there apart from experiments or any kind of machines, even apart in some sense from uh, our physiology and so forth. Let's say we have all these rational um, deliberations and we have come to the conclusion, this is what I should be doing unambiguously. Are we then free to say no to that? Can we act against better knowledge? What does Aristotle say? Aristotle uh, talks about akrasia at that moment. So that is incontinence. You know, sometimes sensual uh, kind of stuff can overtake us. But that's not a good response if we are at this level because we just said, I mean, that's what we already have left behind. I mean, this is about rational options that we have. These physical kind of causalities have been bracketed or um, left behind at this point. Um, what um, Aquinas would say is, that is what reason is doing. Reason has settled on something, but then the will has not yet made its choice. 
we can still say no to that. We can act against better knowledge. The will is independent from that. So our reasoning provides a necessary condition for us to have free choices, but it's not a sufficient condition. The choice still needs to be made. And that's made not by reason, but by the will. The will is a separate faculty, as Aquinas says, um, that has to do its own thing after reason has run its course. It's interesting to notice, I mean, I just mentioned Aristotle. Uh, antiquity does not envision a separate uh, faculty of the mind that's called the will. For Aristotle, it's just the rational appetite, you know, or sense appetites being rationalized, if you want. It, that is something that originates with the church fathers and especially with St. Augustine. And it seems to be have to do with, you know, larger questions of Christianity, I think. Um, it doesn't mean it's an invention, but it's something that comes out to our awareness. But if you think uh, St. Paul, for example, you know, the good I know I don't do, right? Against better knowledge, I don't do it, right? So that's an ex that something that becomes an ex experience there. Um, um, Augustine, you know, as uh, shortly before his conversion, he's struggling and so forth, and I just cannot get myself to do this. And, um, and isn't that puzzling? You know, uh, I can lift my arm anytime I want. I can use my will to lift my arm, but I cannot use my will to move my will. How do I get to the point that I actually will this? You know. So there's a puzzle that's completely intrinsic to the will, apart from all of rational deliberations, all that we know, there's still a struggle the will has on its own, if you want. And I don't see anybody in antiquity uh, uh, even becoming aware of such a struggle. So I think there's a deepening sort of, of the perspective of what we do when we make free choices. And so Aquinas will say, and has a, many ways in which he does that, uh, there are ways in which the will and the intellect are correlated. <coughs> we haven't really talked about the Aristotelian causes yet. You know, uh, the intellect, he says, is the formal cause. And you can take this in this case in such a way that it's just reason informing your choices. You make an informed decision, you know, informing the will of what can be chosen. The will is the efficient cause, that is the moving cause that actually makes the choice. That actually sets itself into motion that way. Um, and another pair of terms that he's using is, this is the freedom of specification. This is already its own kind of freedom because, I mean, we can reason about that, we can specify our choices. Um, and that's independent you know, from other forms of determination. But then we also have to exercise that choice. So it's the freedom of specification, the freedom of exercise. One is done by reason, and the other is done by the will. And then there are all sorts of dialectics, because they're also mutually inclusive. You can actually choose to deliberate. That, too, you have to do. You, know, you can be willfully ignorant if you choose not to think about it. You know? Or you can think about your act of will and say, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, it's one of my choices not to do something. 
So there are uh, interesting kind of um, interactions between the two. But it's an, uh, I think the best way of trying to make sense or figure out how these two things operate and what we do if we make choices. So, um, <clears throat> Aquinas would, to a certain extent, agree with Sartre, or was he? I don't know, quite as now, that we do have certain free choices. We can take a stance towards things, or we can, by our reasoning, transcend how things are and envision other things and choose them. Um, but for Aquinas, that freedom is not merely a negation. It's not a mere denial of what is. It is choosing for something positive. It is choosing for our ultimate good, for our ultimate happiness. And it is because of that that we have freedoms in other regards, but freedom with regard to the means to that end. But it's always oriented towards a good. Um, now, on the other side, does Aquinas perhaps agree also with the neurophysiologists? Actually, yes. So Aquinas is, in a way, in the between. He has actually a, a fairly commonsensical account, if you come to think of it, that combines the schizophrenia that we are living in, typically. So Aquinas certainly readily acknowledges that there are things outside of the range of our choices. Again, I cannot jump over a skyscraper for one, you know, or eat Chicago. Um, but what about our brains and our hormones? No, I cannot change them at will. Uh, there's even, I mean, can I change my heartbeat? Maybe there's some Asian forms of meditation that allow you to do that, but typically not, you know? I mean, so our vegetative system, even our own body, is not uh, part of the range of our options that we have. That's not what we make choices about. Um, the, um, the way our digestion works, that's not by our will, it does that on its own. You know? um, our procreative functions, you know, sometimes to our embarrassment, work independently from our choices. St. Augustine thinks that's a consequence of the fall, but Aquinas doesn't think so. He says that's natural, you know. And we don't have that free choice about that. That's also about our internal senses, urges that arise, just as described in that experiment. That's not itself in our control. Some things can be indirectly in our control. So if I put my hand on a hot stove, I burn myself. I don't have a choice about that, that imposes itself on me. Um, but I can choose not to put my hand there, right? So whatever occurs to me in sensation, imagination, there are indirect ways of going about that. Aquinas actually looks at that in detail. It's very interesting. Um, let's say, uh, well, let's say uh, typical temptations. You just don't put yourself on the occasion of sin, as we say, right? You avoid certain circumstances where you know you will be tempted or may fall. Um, you might not have a choice anymore if you're in the midst of it, you know, but there's the prior deliberation. And we have, while we don't have a control over some spontaneous reactions, we do typically control, have control over our body and its locomotion. I can lift my arm at will, I can walk out of the room, and so I can avoid whatever would otherwise overtake me. So there's an indirect control I have about some features of my body and my mind. <coughs> I can distract myself if I have bad thoughts, for example, you know, just by going in a different room, perhaps, or doing something else. I can 
even rethink my emotional responses, Aquinas says. That's what we call cognitive therapy today. You know? So you use reasoning to re-envision even your uh, emotive or imaginative kind of responses to things. <clears throat> so you see that there's a range of things. You know, um, Father Raymond talked about the kind of hierarchies of being yesterday. That exists in us too. The lowest forms we don't have control over. You know, they just are what they are. But the higher you go, the more you have control. First indirect control and then more direct control. Um, <clears throat> there is uh, one thing that's often overlooked in Aquinas, but it's worth pointing out. And that is Aquinas doesn't think um, anything can move the will directly, except by way of the mind. So some people might say, oh, my emotions just overtook my will, you know, and that's when I ran away with it. You know? Aquinas doesn't say, think our emotions can act on the will that way. They always come by way of the mind. They might distort what we think. That's when uh, our affects might overtake us. But by as long as we can reason, we are responsible for what we do, because if we reason about our emotions, then we can put them in a wider scope and relativize them or rethink them and so forth. So, um, again, choices presuppose knowledge, you know, and nothing else can move the will directly. Um, certainly, there are certain things that can prevent the exercise of much of our cognitive functions. If you take drugs, for example, your brain damage, then that might impair your free choices because you, it doesn't give you any choices anymore at that point. Or on a torture, you know, these are all kind of things. And, um, but at that point, it also ceases to be a choice. You know, that's important to see that. Um, what about laws of nature? That's another big question. Mm -hmm. So if laws of nature determine what we do, including the laws of you know, electric impulses in our brain and so forth, and that is a closed system, what happens to our free choice? Well, it wouldn't be there. And I think that is a real question. And I think um, we have all reason to challenge the assumption that these laws are operative always and everywhere. I don't think they are typically tested in human organisms, for example. Uh, if that were so, we could not even state that as a theory, as I said earlier. The theory that states that everything is causally determined cannot itself be causally determined if it wants to make a claim at all. So that, that's another big philosophical question. Still, we can ask, so what, what do all these natural causalities do in us? And now Aquinas did not have notions of laws of nature in the way we do have today, but there is one analog that he has. And that is, and that will sound strange, astrology. So in the Middle Ages, people did believe that the motions of the heavenly bodies and so forth influence our constitution, our human constitution, and that can, have an, uh, can affect our, um, our choices as well in, in, in direct ways. And the motion of these heavenly bodies, Aquinas thought, are according to 
geometry, the circular and things like that. You know? So not unlike the laws of nature that we envision today, it's just that we have moved these laws of nature into the earthly realm. Right? They're also operating geometrically with a certain kind of necessity. And, um, and there again, the same question arise. So I mean, this is not just a mere medieval superstition, it's just the best possible science they had at that time. But the paradigm is not essentially different from today in principle, you know, that would just apply in different ways. And Aquinas then asked the question, well, how, what does that do to our free will? You know, we would say perhaps, you know, the electrons and so forth just made me do it. Aquinas would say, well, this is equivalent to saying the stars made me do it, right? Um, and um, Aquinas quotes an old saying, namely, astra inclinant non necessitant. The stars do incline us to certain choices, but they don't necessitate that choice. And what you can think of here, perhaps, an analogy is um, our genetic equipment, our brain physiology, our hormonal kind of um, uh, makeup, you know, um, or the neurophysiology creates certain predispositions for certain choices, and they incline us to these choices, but we still have the choice to make. And that um, Aquinas thinks is what will happen for the most part. These predispositions will be what happens to play out in the larger case, number of cases. And he says, the wise people are the ones who are most free from that. That sounds very elitist, you know? So, so the, the masses sort of follow these inclinations, but uh, the wise man can step back away from that. You know? um, uh, but first of all, we should notice, you know, I mean, how do we usually operate? You know, do we rush to our first impulses, to the next clickbait, or something like that? If we do that, we follow those predispositions indeed. If we deliberate about that, then our choices will grow. Um, and I think that is true in every life. That's not just an elitist position from Aquinas to say that only the wise man doesn't do that. It's true even in the wise man's life. Even for the wise man, you can predict that he is going to go to sleep in the evening, that he's going to eat during the day, and so forth, because these are natural predispositions for us to do. And apart from further reasonings, there's no reason not to do it. We should expect that. And I think that is important uh, to notice because people have been puzzled, um, especially beginning in the 19th century, by the fact that there are something like social statistics and um, criminal statistics. So if we are really free, how can it be that there is a statistical likelihood of suicide in a given population? Um, Durkheim and others look at uh, suicide statistics. How can you predict such a thing if we are truly free? You know, then it, can, it doesn't seem to be our choice. Well, Aquinas would say we should expect that. The natural dispositions that there are, and some of them are warped, you know, um, theologically speaking, because of the fall. Um, and if that is a general deep predisposition, we should expect that to hold to be true in a certain number of cases. But as an inclination towards a certain choice, it's not the choice itself. And we still, in individual cases, are always free not to choose this. So Aquinas even has an account for that. It's always surprising what you can find in Aquinas. You know, you think there are modern questions that he didn't know, and he certainly didn't ask the same way. But um, Aquinas has even an account for that if you're looking for it. I probably should stop here and just 
open up for questions. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Father, you, you, you talked a lot about you know the, the freedom of the will um, under the influence of causes that we find in the world, um, causes within us, uh, you know, all the way down to the, the smallest level, right? Atoms, electrons. Um, Causes from without, say, if I'm tortured, mm -hmm. um, uh, things like that. What's common to all of these, right, is that they're secondary causes. They are themselves created causes. Mm -hmm. And it seems like what you want to say is, yeah, especially with like the, the laws of nature, you want to say, yeah, it better not be the case that secondary causes um, fully determine what I do, because if they do, then mm -hmm. I'm not. Um, I was hoping you might elaborate on maybe oh, I know what Aquinas <laughs> says, says uh, right, about the, the way in which the will is free under the influence of, of primary force. Yes, so how about um, predestination and all that? Um, uh, I've just been thinking a lot about this lately, and mm -hmm. when I explain my view to Protestants they, who are not Calvinists, they call me a Calvinist. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering, just yeah, I don't know, your own take on Aquinas' view on uh, the interaction of free will and primary causality. So, uh, I think it's actually, if you take another further step, one has to go there, you're right. So I said, if the intellect has done all its deliberation, then the will just still have a choice. But what moves the will, right? There's still, that the will itself is a secondary cause, and all secondary causes depend on the primary cause. Um, if we then think, now, here's God, you know, and he is pushing our will to do certain things, I think we're already getting the wrong picture. That's like, you know, like these two billiard balls, right? We are not, God and us are not like these two billiard balls. Um, Precisely because God is the first cause. And the first cause is not just a moving cause. The first cause is what gives us our existence. So if God creates us, if he puts us into being, um, the most fundamental thing is already done, if you want. You know? But not only does he create our first act, the act of existence, but also everything else we do because Nothing comes from nothing. You know, if we do something, it must come from some actualizing cause, and that proves the existence of God in that. And, um, but what God does in giving us our act is creative rather than moving. So Aquinas says that, uh, so, or later authors have this picture of two men uh, drawing a ship. You, know, you have like a ship and a canal, and there are roads on the side, and they're drawing this. That's what they used to do. And so there's divided division of labor, basically. And so he said, that's how God and us cooperate. You know? But that puts us and God on the same level. Right? And that's not how it is. For Aquinas, both are doing the whole thing. It's totally our act, but it is an act that is given to us by God. That means we cannot be free unless God gives it to us. But God gives us our freedom. Notice that that God gives that to us is not something that takes our freedom or will away. Um, the um, Bossuet has this line, uh, says that, um, um, what would be more absurd than to say that 
the exercise of our free will is not free because God wants it to be free. <laughs> God gives us our freedom, therefore it cannot be free. No, that doesn't make sense. But uh, so on that background, though, you can in a sense, first of all, God um, gives us the whole of our free acts and gives it as totally our own. So there's nothing, there's no competition there, in other words. You know? So it's not a zero-sum game between God and us. It's entire and whole. And you now, in addition to that, God is not just any old cause. You know, God would be, in this case, the efficient cause. You know, he's you know, making certain things happen, actualizing them. But God is also our final cause. In the sense we had said, God is our ultimate happiness. God is that for the sake of which we choose everything else. He's the ultimate end. Now, if you think of that which you most desire in life, and you think of that as that moving you towards itself, do you think that makes you unfree or something like that? That is meaningless to say such a thing. You know, that's the very definition of freedom. If the very ultimate final cause is at the same time your ultimate efficient cause, you know, that is that which you want most is also the most moving thing and the, most, and the one that moves you towards that goal. So if you cast it that way, I don't think uh, certain uh, anxieties arise as easily. <laughs> you know. well, would, you, would, you call that, would you call that a compatibilism? Yeah, so I mean, this phrase compatibilism and incompatibilism, uh, for those who might not be familiar with that, I mean, so some people will say uh, there's a sense of free will that we can defend which is compatible with determinism. We can be totally determined by laws of nature, and yet we can still call that freedom. That doesn't make sense to me. But I think compatibilism is used in different ways. If you talk about it in terms of God, and whether it's compatible with God's causality, I think, yes, that's, that's I would call that theological compatibilism, but not physicalist compatibilism. That's, these are two different things. In fact, if you take that away, you will fall into physical determinism. The, the dependency on the first cause is what makes us free with regard to the secondary causes. Uh, why don't we go ahead and end there? If you have a question in mind, please you know, write it down or uh, we'll resolve it on. Forget it, because mm -hmm. we do have a session that's marked on the schedule as quote liberal discussion, which sounds a lot like a lot of fun, right? Um, <laughs> but it's the whatever discussion. So uh, we have choices. Have full, we have a full hour and a half to, to cover all questions this later this afternoon, combined with Father Brian Conley and so. So let's thank Father Hinson. And just to let you know, too, after lunch, uh, we have some free time. And uh, there's an incredibly beautiful garden in the back that you're welcome to explore. And to get there, you go out this front door uh, on this side of the house and turn left. And your G key, if the gate's not open, your G key will get you in there. Um, and hopefully you can get back in. <laughs> um, also, I noticed all of the slots are filled, so I'll put some more there if anyone's still hoping to have a slot to meet with the priest. Um, but yeah, we can make our way over to lunch. So the next section, the session begins at 2.30. That's right. The greatest marvel of nature. The greatest marvel of nature. There are a few guys that didn't have one because they're right now. So if you didn't get one or you didn't get one, please come and see me.
kind of Say equating, that you're equating intellect. Yeah, I didn't distinguish that in this case. Yeah. So that would be followed. Um, yeah, distinction to make. But it's different, or? Well, it seems so like the, that's what you're the intellect is, uh, for Aquinas, the, the part of the mind that is about the first principles. So it's the intuition of first principles. Okay. The whole is greater than its parts and so forth. Um, that's intuitive knowledge. That's not itself reasoning, because reasoning depends on these principles. Okay. So it's a but what level. you do, if you deliberate about mm -hmm. the free choices, about the means to the end, that's when you use reason. But the, the orientation towards the end itself is what the intellect does. It talks about the voluntas et natura. That is, that's by our very nature, our will is inclined. 